I think I have a jacket somewhere. One or, once or, I speak at conferences occasionally. Yeah. And I, I show up in pajamas on some of them because that's kind of, I tell people that's how I build my businesses. Some place they at least put on a suit jacket. So I've actually shown up at a conference with a pajama and I just put like a sports jacket on top of my pajama and I just walk into the room. <laughs> people seem to like that. That's probably pretty hip. <laughs> I guess so. It's, it's the next next step, right? We went from like, you know, geek t-shirts under our sports jackets mm-hmm. to like pajamas under our sports jackets. I think that's the next vanguard of, uh, of chic, right? Yeah. I can see it. I can see it a little flannel. <laughs> so I got, I got the checkered shorts on. So we're, Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, so we're good. We're good. Where are you at right now? Where are you? Where are you I am in Querétaro, Mexico. Okay. Where is that? It's about three hours north of Mexico City. My wife's Mexican. It's a lot cheaper to live here than it is to live in the United States. So, hey, why not? I work online, right? So I can live anywhere. We're looking to go to Southeast Asia as soon as this COVID thing's over. Want our son to grow up with a third language. Got you. Got you. I was going to say, 10-month-old, what are you... uh... You're looking at schools. What do you got to start planning? Well, that's one thing we'll let the look at. Luckily, my wife's a teacher, so she kind of handles a lot of that kind of stuff. But I grew up in the international school system myself. Okay. So as long as the place has an international school, I'm good. Um, I, you know, I grew up in Turkey, so I went to the American school when I was in Istanbul. Um, and a lot of these major, most major cities have like a branch of that international school system. So as long as they do that, most all my friends went to college. It, gotcha. It'll get you into college. It'll be fine. Right. Right. I mean, so it's my, my wife homeschools our kids. So that if you, would... we want to do that about a year, maybe, maybe two, we want to spend at least a year like traveling, but that's when he's older, right? Like 10 or 11. So we can actually remember it. We'll do at least a year and kind of homeschool him as we travel around the world. So we can yeah. kind of check, you know, he can yeah. get that experience. We would love to do that. But if you had told me 10 years ago that I would be homeschooling two sons, I would be like, are you crazy? <laughs> well, that's why I'm like, at this point, I'm like, I'm not homeschooling him. My wife would, but I'll do the math. I'm an engineer, right? So I'll do the math part, but she can take care of the rest. <laughs> yeah, so. that is true. I, I keep saying, I, I, have, I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> exactly. When we take the credit, our wives do the work, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So hi, I am Michael. I am a small business owner, investor, a work in process improv artist, a bit manic and always looking for something new and interesting to entertain me. I'm a TV host and your host right now for what we call the Second Scene Podcast, a dweeb global production. Uh, Dweebs Global is a place where you can go for free help on resume building, mental health assistance, and so much more. There's no catch. We're completely confidential. So please contact us at dweebsglobal.org contact to get help for free. It's really free. I promise it's free. So I am here today with Ray Blankley, Blankney. That's how you say it, right? Blankney. Blankney. Yeah. I'm Don't known for that. my worst pronunciations. So. No, no, no. Uh, th- I am so used to people pronouncing it badly that I don't even register it anymore. Okay, good. <laughs> well, he started his career as a software developer and has transitioned into a full-fledged entrepreneur, bootstrapping six and seven-figure online businesses, which is allowing him and his wife to uh, live life like uh, the rest of us can only imagine, traveling around <laughs> and uh, working in his pajamas. I, I was going to use your own intro that you have on your website because I love it so much. Ray Blankney. Sure, I'm not saying it. It's probably like every other award-winning Filipino-American location-independent entrepreneur who grew up in Turkey and lives in Mexico that you know. It's all my friends. All oh, my that's friends. what I'm like. Everybody knows a few of me's, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so you're currently in in Mexico, dying for COVID to not literally dying, no. hoping for COVID to end, and uh, wanting to get back out on the road and travel some more. That's right. This is probably the longest amount of time I haven't traveled in, I mean, go so far as since college. Those, you know, those four years of college, I didn't do too much traveling. But like before that and after that, I traveled at least once a year. 
And nowadays we do it a lot more than that. You know, my wife and I travel three to four months out of every year. We usually travel. That's so wonderful. yeah, being home this long, it's, we got, we have a 10 month old. I think we probably would have been home most of this time anyway, but it still feels weird. Yeah. So the, the timing having to, exactly. Yeah. I was, I was talking to somebody else about wearing masks around the, the kids and when they're that young and how odd that's going to be and kind of scary. And so. I know it happens when we go and see our pediatrician, right? Because she's wearing a mask and he walks in there and he doesn't know how to react to her because you know, he, he's a very smiley baby, but usually it's because somebody smiles at him and he reacts and he smiles back. For all we know, she's smiling at him, but he, he doesn't know how to react, right? So he's just kind of sitting and staring at her and has no idea how to read people. So yeah, the masks are kind of throwing a lot of loops for the for a lot of babies out there. Yeah, it's like a bunch of Darth Vader's walking around. <laughs> I haven't introduced him to Star Wars yet, but as a, as a geek, he's definitely going to be introduced at some point in his life. <laughs> Good, they need to be. Exactly. <laughs> Mandalorian is my bonding time with my sons once a week. So. Once he's old, I can, I'm not watching it now just so I can keep it you know, to when he's old enough to actually notice it and him and I can sit down and watch it. There's yeah. actually, for those of you watching the video, there's actually Be More Vader, a book on the shelf behind me. So you can see where my inspiration comes from. Yes, I didn't even see that. <laughs> so uh, I, could feel, I could feel it. I could feel exactly. it. There. <laughs> so you, you grew up in Turkey. Yeah. Um, I can't say that's a place I've ever been. I would love to travel, especially after doing a little bit of research on it. It's mm. got such a rich and long history. Um, it's just the diversity of the landscapes from yeah. you have salt flats to the deep room Mediterranean. Uh, it sounds amazing. It, it's, you know, as a kid, you don't actually appreciate it, right? Because it's normal. But I actually grew up right next to a castle called the Rumeli Hisar Castle. Like literally, it was across the street from me. So, you know, when your front door neighbor in the United States might be, there's another house there. About 20 feet from my house, I had a 3,000 year old, well, 2,000 year old castle. And as a local kid, because I would speak Turkish, like, you know, I could, like a native, they just assumed I was a Turk and we would actually play in the castle. So when we play knights and robbers, we would literally be playing in an old castle. And it's not, if you've been to the UK and seen those castles, it's on a much bigger scale than that. This was a castle that was built during the Byzantine Empire to keep ships from going through the Bosphorus. It is massive. I mean, you know, it's it's a few city blocks as far as size. It's built on the side of a hill. So like the top part is a lot higher up the hill than the bottom part. So you see like the wall coming down it. So we would just go around and play there. I remember looking back now. Um, yeah, a lot of those walls would not have passed any safety codes in the United States. Like on the inside part of it, there was no nothing keeping us from just like jumping off and falling 50 feet. I mean, it was just to you could just totally fall off. The stairs were more, you know, we're, we're not that well maintained. I'm sure it's a lot better now. It's It's been quite a while since about 20 years since I, I was doing that so i'm sure they've improved on things well just you had no idea that young the, the how lucky you were to be well that's around. it you know when you're a kid you're not afraid of anything now i have a fear of heights i don't think i could even go on that wall i have no idea <laughs> that's amazing so what part of turkey was that istanbul so i we used to live okay. right off the right there in the bosphorus in istanbul my dad used to work in the golden horn which is where the you know constantinople that was Constantinople. So the Golden Horn area is the Constantinople. He used to work there and he would take a ferry to boat, ferry boat to work every day. So you'd kind of get on the ferry and it would cross the Bosphorus on the way to work every day. The interesting part about that is one side of the Bosphorus is Europe, the other side is Asia. So on the way to work, he would go from Europe to Asia about 20 times before he got to his office every single day for about 15 years. <laughs> Well, I, I felt special because I went from Maryland to Virginia back to Maryland every day for my work. <laughs> well, those could almost be different worlds depending on where you're at, right? <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yeah, you lived in the museums. So we have wonderful museums in DC, but man, to grow up around it. Well, it's one of when I, you know, 
so I'm American, but I didn't actually live in the U.S. till I was 15 or 16. I remember the first time. So my U.S. side, my family's from Boston. So, you know, we would go around and they'd say, this building is 200 years old. And we'd just kind of be sitting there. My sister and I would be sitting there looking. And I'm like, yeah, so it's modern art, right? Because I mean, I lived in a city where the buildings were like 3,000 years old in some cases. So I'm like, 200 is barely even worth mentioning. So they, a lot of the times in the U.S. we forget that a lot of, there's these other parts in the world living in Mexico now, right? The Mayan pyramids that are, just a few hours away from me there they were built thousands and thousands of years ago right um so 200 year old buildings even here in mexico barely register as far as historic landmarks are concerned uh so if i if i come to turkey what are the places that i should visit what what do you what do you recommend okay so so in istanbul specifically there are tons of places to visit if you've ever been to rome or italy it's kind of the same idea right there's thousands and thousands of years of history so generally what most people do is they stay near the golden horn which is where the um I can't even remember what's called in English. It's called the Kapalı Çarşı in Turkish, but it's the Grand Bazaar. There you go. The Grand Bazaar. This is a place for literally thousands of years. Most of the trade in Europe, between Europe and Asia, passed through that. And you know, these you're going to see places there that are literally thousands of years old. It's amazing. Kind of a whole. All the senses are being assaulted while you're there. You're surrounded by walls that are also thousands of years old. Um, but from there, you can go to some more quote unquote modern stuff from the Ottoman Empire. You can go to Dolmabahçe, which is a palace you can go to the harems where the you know the sultan used to have all of his women but the beautiful buildings as well uh galata uh, tower which according to the turks is the first place man actually flew it wasn't the wright brothers it was there was a guy who built a glider and jumped off of that apparently um and he, he did that a few hundred years ago um you can go to the castles which are a little farther down the strait that's in istanbul my favorite places to visit outside of that and the rest of turkey is i like a place called pamukkale which means cotton castle when you translate it into English. And it's, if you look at it from a distance, because it's all this white travertine rock and hot springs at the top. So the Greeks actually built a, a temple up there thousands of years ago. Right now they're hotels. But, you know, back then there was, but you can go to one of the hotels and the old ruins of the temple are actually falling down. So they're columns, but you can swim in it. It's a hot spring. So it's all the waters are coming in. You're like swimming around these Greek columns. It's an amazing place, but it looks like it's made out of cotton. It's a hill that looks like it's made out of cotton. And you oh, can wow. see it from the distance when you go there. Um, Cappadocia is worth seeing. You, nowadays, apparently the hot air balloon tours. I've seen pictures. That wasn't a thing back in my day when I was going there, but they make good wine and you can go to these underground cities where the, where the Christians um, escaped um, persecution 2,000 years ago in the time of Christ. So they would hide in these underground cities. You can still go and walk through those. Oh, very cool. Yeah, there's so many places. I mean, you know, there's ancient Greeks, ancient Ottoman, ancient, I mean, if you go to Western Turkey, that's where, you know, some of the first civilizations that we barely even know the names of were created, you know, way before Christ, right? Um, so the, the history in Turkey goes back thousands and thousands of years. What, what is, what is uh, your favorite bits of history that you visited there? We did so much when I was a kid. And the beauty is when we moved there in, okay, so I was 11 months old, 1980. This was way before like the tourism age, right? So I remember going with my parents. We go to sites now that you have to pay to get into. But back then they were still excavating them. So we would just show up. We would have to go through like parts of it where they were still draining water. So we would kind of go knee deep. I was a kid, so probably was less than knee deep for an adult, but knee deep in water to kind of get to places where people couldn't even see. Like we, we went to parts of Ephesus that most people have never seen, which is an old Greek ruin um, that's there as well. Um, it was also part of the Roman Empire. So you're going to find old Roman, Roman ruins, Greek ruins, Ottoman ruins. I mean, and some of them aren't even ruins, right? Like the Hagia Sophia um, is still there. It was a church, then a mosque, then a church, then a mosque. Um, then those are hundreds of years old. There's so many amazing things. I love the food. I don't know why Turkish food is not more popular in the world. 
Yeah. Um, it's, I was reading about it. it. Seems like a lot more diverse than people think. People think it's just thing, kebabs, and it's uh, yeah. No, I mean kebabs is a Middle Eastern thing, and they have them. They have doner kebab, which is kind of like a shawarma thing. But it's my theory is is because Turkish people don't tend to immigrate as much, okay. and that's why you know generally the food is brought over by immigrants who bring you know Italians brought over the Italian food. Irish, and I'm allowed to say it because my background is my dad's Boston Irish, brought over the Irish food. The, Take that as you will, um, you know. But the Turks never really left because they, you know, their country's been relatively wealthy. Even today, it's it's part of the G20, so it's you know, it's a relatively wealthy country. They had no incentive to leave, um, so you don't find them there. If you're in a big city, you might find a Turkish restaurant that's there, right? But chances of it's not like Italian or Thai or all the rest of it, or like literally every corner you can find one, or Mexican, where you can find them on every corner. Turkish, you can't. And I think that's the reason why. I've never met somebody who's tried Turkish food and said, wow, that's awful. It's delicious. Um, but yeah, it's, you have to go out of your way to find it. It's not in your face like a lot of these other foods you find. Um, so you and your wife travel all the time. Where's where's some of the favorite places that you, you and your wife have been able to go? Our favorite place is the last trip that we did before COVID together, which was Japan. We love, love, love Japan. We'd love to figure out a way to live there. We've looked into it. But as far as we can tell, unless I marry a Japanese woman, which she does not like that plan. Um, there's really no good way for us to do it uh, or get a job. And we don't need a job. We have a job. We run businesses, right? So right. I'm not going to look for a job in Japan. So it's very hard for us to find a way to live there. Visiting is easy, right? Anybody shows up, they give you a 90-day tourist visa. But actually living there is um, a lot of work. So Japan's probably our favorite country that we've been to. Um, some of the coolest trips we did, like some of the great experiences, Morocco, we had some cool experiences there. We kind of camped in the Sahara Desert um, for a few nights, had some really cool experiences when we were there in Morocco. We loved Italy uh, while we were there as well. We really liked Italy. I just recently, the last conference I spoke at was in Thailand and I actually found, I like Thailand more than I thought, uh, thought I would. I'm half Filipino, so I kind of assumed it'd be kind of the same as the Philippines. No, it's a lot more developed than the Philippines is. Okay. Um, the food's a lot better. Uh, so I actually, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I actually like Thailand as well. Bali's nice, wouldn't want to live there, but it's kind of a nice place to go and relax. Those would probably be some of the top places in the list. China was cool to visit, wouldn't want to live there. Um, so I've been to about 50 countries, about 20 of them with my wife and about 30 before. Okay. And yeah, some of them are neat. Most of them are in the great place to visit, wouldn't want to live there category. Um, and a very few of them are in the I would want to live there category. I need to get out there more. You're making me feel like I'm not a traveler. We were just in Italy. Uh, we go to Spain all the time, Sweden. I would love, now that I've, been, I've researched Turkey, I'm like, that just moved up my list. So Southeast Asia is kind of a cool place to visit simply because I would never recommend it to somebody's first trip, right? If it's your first trip, what I always recommend to people is go to the UK. You know, because that's it's culturally different enough that you're it's exotic. Right. But if you're going from the United States, hey, they more or less speak English. Um, you know, so you can you should be able to communicate with most of them, except they'll tell you to wait in a queue instead of wait in the line. So if you can kind of get past that, UK is a great way to get your feet wet. Then go to Europe, which is kind of the next level. Um, after that, if you're looking for more exotic, I do say Southeast Asia because like cultural differences are much more stark there. You can look at that as a bad way, but you can also look at it like, wow, this is really cool just because this is so different from what I'm used to every day. I think that you that'd can be kind wonder, of... wonderful for my boys, 11 and That's 8, it. and I think it would yeah. just be great for them to see at such a young age how different the world could be. That's exactly it. it it's just going to get them exposed to something that's so different from what they're used to at home. Europe is not that exotic, right? Um Partially because of TV. We, you know, If you watch Game of Thrones, all the rest of it, it's kind of European mythology, castles, all the rest of it. 
we kind of are used to it. But when you go to Asia, we have no cultural point of reference. Not, I mean, in many of the countries, the alphabet is not even Latin, right? So you can't read a single sign. Lots of motorcycles in the street, which is chaos. I would never drive in Southeast Asia. Um, but it's just, just the, I love the way it feels with the energy when you're there. Because you're just sitting in the street, everybody's on the move. You know, it's very different from laid back in a lot of places in the U.S., especially in the suburbs. It's like, yeah, it's relaxing. But it just feels like there's always something going on. You lived in New York, right, Michael? So, you know, it's, it's like feels like the difference between New York City and the suburb of Maryland. I mean, they're just totally different worlds, right? You just feel stuff's going on. And to me, Southeast Asia is kind of like that. So you go there. There's all these great things you can take out. And the food's amazing. I'm getting myself out there. I'm going <laughs> to talk to my wife right after this interview. <laughs> I have to ask you about a couple of stories that I, I heard. Let's do it. Uh, Get accused of being a CIA spy. Yeah, yeah, that, that was fun. Um, so my story is I was a computer program in the United States. I was working in Silicon Valley for a little bit, and then I ended up working for a Fortune 500 company. Um, I think they were Fortune 100. And because the economy started going south and consulting, you know, you wanted to get a stable job. So that's why I started working there. They treated us really well. No complaints whatsoever about the company itself. But I wanted something a little more interesting out of my life. So I joined the Peace Corps. I knew about the Peace Corps because my dad was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Philippines. That's how we met my mom. So, you know, I, it was in the back of my mind. I was late 20s at the time. Um, so they sent us to Mexico. They train us. Then they sent me to southern Mexico, the state of Chiapas, which is on the border with Guatemala. And I was working in a science and investigation center, which was part of the Mexican equivalent of the National Science Foundation. What I didn't know that there was this inter internal power struggle between two people who wanted to be the next director of the place. So the current director invited us in to be there, but of course somebody else wanted to take his job. So we started spreading these rumors that we were all CIA spies there to steal all the information in this science center and even called national newspapers. This wasn't like a small thing. I was in a, you know, they didn't mention me by my name, but they said, uh, you know, a CIA spy has infiltrated this center. Um, so very specific where it was at. There were protests out in the front of the center. I mean, you know, there wow. were protests, all the rest of it. The beauty is I'm half Filipino. So when you see me on the street, they just assumed I was Mexican. So, I mean, I could walk straight through the middle of those protesters and go straight into it. One of the other Peace Corps volunteers was like blonde, blue eyed, and he got harassed all the time. I could just walk straight through them and, you know, they would actually hand me a sign or something. <laughs> you know, I, I would walk in with a sign saying, get rid of the gringos on my way to work every day. And they'd have no idea I was there. But that was kind of a, it was a little scary because, you know, people in the, in the center knew who I was. Mm -hmm. The U.S. ambassador visited us while I was there. And I was invited to, you know, me and the other Peace Corps volunteers were invited to meet with him. Also protests all over the place, all these, you know, big satellite dishes, news stories there. And there was this, just one entrance into the restaurant that we were meeting up with them. I had to walk straight through that entrance, right? So everybody saw me going in. Again, it helped that I blended in. Um, ironically, I probably have made a really good CIA spy if I actually was one, because nobody would have had any idea I was a foreigner walking into this place. So the, the Peace Corps, from what I understand, it's a pretty lengthy uh, application process and very mm -hmm. difficult to actually get into. That's what they say. I mean, you know, luckily I'm on the receiving end, not on the the, the actual, you know, filtering in they say about 50 percent of the people 50 to 60 percent when i was doing it didn't get accepted it's actually gone it had gone up before covid because more and more people were applying so they have a limited number of spaces every year so i think it was even only about 30 percent were left were allowed in um lengthy application process yeah they told me the same thing say expect one to two years mm -hmm. so i started my application i had a job i didn't tell them anything about the application expecting i'll be here for another two years 
Yeah. It took 12 weeks from my day I submitted my application to the day I showed up in Mexico. I had to sell my house, sell my car, quit my job, and get rid of all my things in 12 weeks. So yeah, that you know, it was it was not the case for me. I got in really, really quickly. Um, I know some people in the process right now and they're going to hate you. <laughs> I, know, I know. Well, but right now everything's on pause, right? They just, they shut down the Peace Corps for the last, when COVID started, they brought everybody around the world back into the United States. Um, right. But yeah, for most people it's a year or two. I think it was also because I was in a really odd position. I was a 28 year old, no, I was 26. Yeah, I was a 26 year old computer engineer making six figures who applied to the Peace Corps to make $150 a month. What led you to that decision? Why would why'd you make oh. the six-figure cushy job for... Yeah, so that's a really interesting story. Um, there was a, a commercial on TV was actually what got me to quit my job, if, you, if you'll if you believe Commercials it. work on TV? I know, I know. It's, they, you think they don't, but they absolutely <laughs> do. Um, but that actually, I had just got a uh, commissioned a painting inspired by the saying on this commercial because it's what's kind of formed my life since then. So the commercial was for the U.S. Navy. Um I had no intention of joining the Navy. My respects, my uncle was in the Navy. Um, but if somebody starts shooting at me, I'm running away as fast as physically possible. So that, you know, it didn't inspire me to join the Navy. But the saying was, if they were to write a book about your life, would anybody want to read it? And I come from a family with a pretty interesting background, right? My dad grew up in, Af in Rhodesia, in Africa. My grandfather was the, first was the first minister of the first all-black church in Harare, even though he was you know, white as a snowflake. Uh, my grandfather, my, my grandfather was grew up in China, had to run away during the Boxer Revolution because my great grandfather was a Harvard professor who was doing a year, you know, a sabbatical or and teaching at Peking University at the time. So he's the first one to translate the Tao from Chinese Mandarin into English. And I was sitting in a cube writing code. And I was looking back at the rest of my family, you know, my dad was ran a publishing house in Istanbul, Turkey for many years was, you know, in newspapers, he's written books, he also has his master's and doctorate from Harvard. And uh, yeah, again, I'm sitting in a queue. So I was looking at that commercial and I'm thinking, I'm like, yeah, if I continue on this route, absolutely not. Nobody, I wouldn't read my own book, right? What's it going to say? He sat in a queue for 40 years and he wrote code. Yeah, he made a good salary. He might own a house. You know, what do you do next? I owned a condo and a car and I need to buy a bigger condo and a bigger car, right? That's the American dream. Yeah, um, in some ways though, code is, it, it changes the world right now. So it does. No, I'm, I'm really happy with what I chose. It's led me down the path that I'm at right now. You know, I've, as you say, this is my second scene. I'm an entrepreneur now. I started as a programmer. Right. Without being a coder, I would never have had the opportunity to be an entrepreneur. But in and of itself, it's, you know, it, the company I worked for sold chemicals. And so if I wrote good code, we sold more chemicals. Right, I got you. I, I, and I was like, yeah, that doesn't wake me up in the morning, get me all excited. <laughs> um, so I saw that commercial. I went to work the next day. I was a team lead. They invited me to a one of those cheese platter, fruit platter events where they gave somebody a watch saying, thank you for 40 years of dedicated service to our company. And I remember sitting there staring at it and I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be him. Later that afternoon, I went on my computer, applied for, applied for the Peace Corps. I was like, I cannot continue on this path that I'm on. This is, I will not be happy if 40 years from now, they're giving me that watch. So I applied and it changed my life. What, uh, what led you to, what, what about the commercial and what about the Peace Corps really drew you in? Well, the Peace Corps I'd known about my whole life, I considered, most people do straight out of college, right? Um, I'd considered it, but again, I was on the path everybody expects, right? I went to college, I studied computer in, computer programming, computer engineering, what do you do? You get a job at a good company that pays you well, and you look for state stability and all the rest of it, right? So I kind of was letting an inertia take me at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of us 
too. That's a lot. Well, that's of it. And I mean, I go on and wonder why, or it is yeah. a sprint race. It's the just trying to get something bigger and better. And that's it. And we want a bigger car, a bigger house, all the rest of it. Because we think that's going to make us happy, right? We kind of see people who are rich and we think they're happy, even though in a lot of cases, they, they say wealthier people are not happier than, you know, people who are in a different income racket. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was definitely on that path. You know, I, that, that's what I was doing. That was my plan for life. But I was just, it always felt like something was missing. Um, and I think that was just the breaking point. That commercial just kind of put the fire behind me. And I'm like, that's it. And I live by that now. I want everything I do. I want it to be, you know, I don't want to be famous. Um, that's not the thing. I don't even care if they do write a book about my life. That's not the point. The point is that if they did, my life would have been hopefully interesting enough that people would read about it. And that's kind of every decision I take in my life is leading towards that right now, which is the reason why, you know, I start businesses. I'm a part-time sword fighter. You know, I sing, I, you know, all these different things because that's what life is about. Do some interesting stuff in there. Don't, don't always just try to survive day by day. If you can avoid it. I I can't let you go without asking about that sword fighting. (laughs) (laughs) So I was that little skinny, geeky Asian kid that all of you had and everybody had in their school at some point. The one who got picked last for PE after the girl with the big glasses, that was me. Um, So growing up, of course, I really loved Kung Fu movies and all that where the the underdog learns how to fight and, you know, beats up his bullies or whatever it is at the end of it, right? They don't go grab swords afterwards. (laughs) They don't. Swords, it took me a few steps to get to the sword, right? So... As a kid, I tried a whole bunch of different martial arts, and unfortunately, I was really bad at all of them, every single one. Um, what changed was I, in college, I took a year off to go to Silicon Valley to try to work at startups, try to strike it rich, right? This was like 99, 1999. Um, everybody was kind of getting there. I got a job offer. I told my school, look, I'm taking a year off. They let me, it was more like a furlough, so you know I didn't have to apply again. I went back and finished afterwards. And I got a lot of work experience there. But the, the big thing that I learned was one of my roommates, because in San Francisco, nobody can afford their own place unless you're like a multi-billionaire. Um, so I was rooming with two accountants from HP. And one of them was a professional bodybuilder on the side. So he was kind of doing workouts, all the rest. And he's like, Ray, you know, I was kidding like you. Would you like me to show you how to work out? I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. Let's be honest. I did it because I wanted to get more. I wanted to get girls. I mean, <laughs> why does why do most young men work out? So you know, I started working out with him. He did. He was into the steroids and all the rest. I'm like, okay, I'm not doing that um, because I'm not. He competed like in you know bodybuilding. I'm like, that's not, not for me. But he taught me about eating and bulking up and all the rest of it. So at the end of that year, I put on about 20 pounds. Hopefully, you know, some fat, but you know, a lot of muscle as well. And then I went back, finished college, and I continued to work out. After college, I was like, I really like this martial arts thing. And I tried a few, but then I stumbled upon sword kendo, which is the way of the sword, which is a Japanese martial art, very popular in Japan, almost unheard of outside of Japan. And an interesting thing happened. My body could suddenly keep up with my mind. When you're that skinny kid who has like no muscle, I would tell my arm to move. And then like five seconds later it would move. And by then I've been punched five times in the face. It really didn't work out. But now that I had worked out and I was in actually pretty good shape, I found that my reaction speed was really good. And so I started practicing. I really loved it. I seemed to have like a knack for it. And I started winning tournaments around the United States. I got, they sent me from my federation to try it for the US national team to send to Japan. I didn't make it, but you know, within like three years of doing it, they were sending me to this level of competition. Found I loved it. So I've been practicing it on and off now for about 20 years. Um, I've been practicing Japanese sword fighting and it's great stress relief, great exercise, and it's a lot of fun. You, you did the Peace Corps. 
Uh, and then you came back. And I guess, is that when you started your first business? I never actually came back. I just stayed in Mexico. So my first business was right after the Peace Corps. My wife and I, she was my girlfriend at the time. We talked. I'm like, hey, you know, it'd be a great idea. Let's get married and start a business together. Um, yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily, yeah, like I wouldn't necessarily recommend this to everybody else. And I tell people there's two ways that one ends up, divorce or a really strong relationship. Mm-hmm. I think we got lucky. Yeah, that is a really strong relationship, right? But, you know, we argued a ton the first year or so while we were trying to figure all this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, and our first business, I, you know, it didn't even occur to me to create an online business for some reason, even though I was a computer programmer, was to create a traditional business. We rented out a house when we did a traditional brick and mortar Spanish language school where foreigners would come, they would stay with families and we teach them Spanish during the day. My wife was a Spanish teacher. She'd worked in these kind of places before. I had no business or marketing experience, but I taught myself marketing, something called search engine optimization. And I was probably the only Spanish school in all of Mexico who had a full-time search engine optimization specialist on their staff. So before we even opened, we were number one in the country. If you kind of came in and said, I want a Spanish school in Mexico, we would have come up number one even before we opened. Luckily, most people think that if it's number one in Google, it must be the best. Mm-hmm. It's got nothing to do with that. It just means somebody knows what they're doing and does the marketing. So we were fully booked the day we opened and everything went pretty well for about six months. You know, we were doing well. I only had $2,000 in my bank account when we launched it. So no big money thrown in there. When we launched, we actually only had like one table for a classroom and we would change the table from classroom to classroom. So people would think we actually had more classrooms for like the first two months. People would pay us their deposit and we'd go out and buy more furniture. And, you know, we would just kind of fill up the school that way. Six months in, six to eight months in, the Mexican swine flu hit. This was what, COVID, this was supposed to be COVID back in 2008. Um, so they closed off Mexico's borders. And remember all of our students came from other countries to study with us. So yeah, suddenly we had no students. Six months is not enough time to have a huge amount of money saved up. And our teachers worked week for week. It's just like the United States and Mexico, people don't budget, right? So they, I paid them on Monday. By the following Monday, they probably wouldn't have any money. Um, they requested that. I wanted to pay them once a month just to save me trips to the bank. And my wife's like, yeah, that's not how it works. <laughs> you pay them in cash and you pay them every week. So it was our responsibility to find more work for them. So it was actually my wife who had the idea, why don't we email our previous students and see if they want classes via Skype? right? Because they liked our school a lot. Um, we had a, My wife's an amazing teacher. So people would come back and we had, te- we had students who came back with us for years. Um, so I'm like, that's a great idea. We reached out and we had a good reception. I'm like, hey, why don't we just throw up a page? I'm a programmer. Um, keep in mind, I'm not a graphic designer. So the, pro- the page looked awful, but it worked. I mean, you know, I, programmers are the ones who make it work. Graphic designers are the ones who make it look pretty. I was the latter. So it worked. I, I threw it up there. Exactly. It was well. functional. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, to our surprise, six months, you know, one, the swine flu did not become a big thing. Within 30 days, it was over. We were fully booked 60 days later and the school recovered. But to our surprise, six months down the road, that little dinky website, which wasn't called Live Lingua yet, it was called Spanish Lessons Online or something, because back then that's what you did, um, was making more money than our brick and mortar language school for like an hour of work a day. So I decided to launch a hey, online English lessons com or net. I don't even remember what the domain was. So I launched like 11 microsites and we started doing really, really well. Um, at that point, we decided to sell the school. The school expanded into multiple locations. So we had three branches around Mexico. We sold those in 2012. It took a few years to sell. Now, unfortunately, selling a business is not like eBay. You don't throw it up there and like a week later, you have a bidder and they get it. It took about two years to sell the business. And we stuck, we stayed with Live Lingua. 
Um, and eventually we merged them into one business called Live Lingua instead of 11 microsites. And we built it up from there. We got lucky 2015, we were chosen by Entrepreneur Magazine as one of the best small businesses in the United States. We've been in Forbes, we've been in the Boston Globe, more other ones I can't even remember. Um, and right now we're one of the top three online language schools in the world. And we're the only one without significant venture capital backing. Our two biggest competitors have 10 and $20 million. We started with $59.99 for a Bluehost hosting and me me doing the website, my wife doing the first classes and me answering the emails. So we're, we're kind of the mom and pop. We're like the corner coffee shop going up against Starbucks still to this day um, in, in the language world. So you so that was your first business and now you and your wife have started other businesses as well? Generally, it's me. My wife is actually in that. I'm more of the entrepreneur. She's the teacher, so she sticks with that. Um, she did help me build the chocolate factory too. She ran the HR department in our chocolate factory. We sold the stocks in that a few years back. Um, but a lot of the other businesses I kind of run myself because building businesses is my passion. Uh, I love this What's stuff. the chocolate factory? Oh, we owned the chocolate factory in Southeast Asia, in the Philippines for about five years. So we have one of the, it was one of the, it grew to be the second largest chocolate factory in the Philippines. It's still there. I sold my stock to my partner, just didn't make enough money to warrant the time. So it made enough money for the Philippines, right? So let's say a few thousand dollars a month profit, let's say $5,000 a month profit. If you live in New York City in the US, that's not much. In the Philippines, that's wealth. I mean, that's 0.01% wealth. It just was taking a lot more work than was worth it. So I talked to my partner. I'm like, hey, you know, would you like to buy off my shares? She's like, I don't have the money. It'll take me about two years. Can I pay you monthly? I'm like, no problem. And we're still friends and I can call her up today and she'll send me a huge box of chocolates. But yes, we ran a chocolate factory in the Philippines for a few years. Um, very interesting. I don't like chocolates. I'm a gummy bear guy myself, but my wife does. So I jokingly say, if we ever had a big fight, I could just call up my business, my operational partner. I'm like, send over a box. I really messed up. And you know, within about a week, I'd have a big box of chocolates here um, to do it off. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I need that connection. <laughs> exactly. I think every every married man probably does. That's a new business idea. You know, <laughs> you know get out of jail chocolates. You know, we just, we ship in an hour. We'll just show up at your door for whatever you've done. <laughs> right. Same, same day, same hour. <laughs> same hour drone delivery or something. <laughs> just delivering chocolates. So what other online businesses have you started? So I had a number. I own um, Twidgicate.com, which is a social network for schools with about 200,000 users. Uh, sounds impressive. Doesn't very, make very much money because it's, it's geared toward teachers and I should have known better, but teachers don't have much money. Um, so they use the free version and not that many people pay for it, but it was, it was a neat experiment that we did. Um, I started a few directories. I've sold a lot of those of other language tutors. So uh, not language tutors, of other tutors. So music tutors, math tutors, all the rest of it. Um, I built a few of those and sold a number of those. Those are were much, much smaller businesses. Right now, my biggest project is something called podcasthawk.com. Um, that launches in January of 2021. We're in beta. It'll be, it'll be in beta for almost all of 2021. I like bootstrapping my businesses, so no huge money thrown at it. The idea is, so to promote Live Lingua, I was like, I've had my own podcasts in the past. And Michael, you'll know, they're a lot of work. I mean, you know, you got to not only the interviews, the research, you have to do the production and everything afterwards. So I decided as a business owner, why don't I just show up on podcasts and somebody else does all the work for me, right? I mean, you know, they do the production, they do the promotion, they do all the rest of the stuff. So I went on Google and like podcast guests or something like that, right? I, I did a Google search, not the, it doesn't work, right? I mean, you're going to Google, half the podcasts are out of date. They don't, they're not making episodes anymore. They might not be good fits for you, whatever. So finding a podcast on Google was hard. So I spent a week and I'm like, this, I'm a computer programmer. There's gotta be a better way to do this. So I spent a weekend and I did like a feasibility kind of 
piece of code that I'm like, okay, can I get all the podcasts in iTunes and Stitcher? Yes, I can. Um, can I get emails for them? Huh. Yes, I can. So I threw them all into a database, made it searchable. So right now, somebody can podcast talk when it launches is essentially to say, Michael, you want to appear on other people's podcasts, grow the second scene podcast. You would go in there and I'm like, okay, I'm looking for podcasts, which whose descriptions have the word, you know, um, second career in them. They have at least 10 episodes, 4.5 stars. They've, you know, they've been around, they, they've been made an episode in the last 30 days. So I know that they're active search instead of spending all day searching for them. Boom two or three seconds, you have all of them. Try to reach out. There's services to charge thousands of dollars to book you on like five podcasts. None of this. This is like a hundred bucks per month and you'll hopefully get booked on four to 20 podcasts, depending on uh, which plan you pay for in a month for about a hundred dollars. And that'll promote your business, your personal brand, whatever you're trying to do, get your message out there. Yeah, that's that's a genius service. That's great because uh, it's such great promotion for people. I would like to ask you one final story because it sounds funny. And before I go, I just want to end in another laugh. Uh, how did you almost get eaten by a, a, a camel named Jimmy? I almost got killed by a okay. camel named Jimmy. I almost got eaten by deers in Japan. So there's multiple <laughs> way, multiple animal things. So Jimmy was my camel uh, as we were riding in the Sahara in Morocco to get out to our tents where we were going to be sleeping for two nights. And... So it was just me and my wife um, in our group. And we kind of pull up to the camels and they say, okay, pick your camel. So I picked this guy. He's like, the guy's like, his name's Jimmy. He's really tame. No problem. You'll have a great ride. My, my wife picked another one. Don't remember what that camel's name was. So we kind of get up there and, you know, we're like, oh, this is great. We're kind of pulling out. So we pull out our cameras and we're taking photos. My wife's taking photos of me, all that kind of stuff. We had the Bedouin headgear on because there was a little bit of wind. So the sand was blowing at us. And out of nowhere... Jimmy kind of flips forward, kind of is the way that the camels kind of go down as they bend down on their front legs. He just bends down to the front leg out of nowhere. So I kind of draw my cell phone, grab on for dear life onto the saddle so I don't get thrown off the front of Jimmy. And I notice it's because there's a patch of grass and he's just bending down to do to eat that grass. I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm a camels are high. If you've ever ridden horses, think double that. <laughs> so we did that. And I thought it was one time incident. I'm like, okay, I almost got killed by Jimmy. No, it wasn't. For the next two hours, he kept on going for every patch of grass, flip, you know, just kneeling down out of nowhere. I did actually fall off him once. He kind of did it and I fell off to the side, got back on. The guide was apologizing the entire time. We got to the camp and my wife was like the whole time and on a camera taking photos of me laughing as I was doing that. I got there, my hands were cramped because I was holding onto the saddle so much that I just could not let go for an entire two hours. I almost broke my neck like three times on that. The worst part was we spent two nights there and then I had to ride Jimmy two hours back to get back to our car at the end of it. So yeah, if you ever go to Morocco and you ever get paired with a camel named Jimmy, run. Go and get another camel, drive, walk, whatever you need to do. But don't, do not get on Jimmy's back. Sound like they, it sounds like they gave you a hungry camel. They did. I'm like, I have no idea. What, yeah, I, well, I don't know what they saw in me. They're like, yeah, we're going to have fun with this guy. <laughs> so yeah, they, they gave me Jimmy. They must have known that was going to happen. <laughs> Nice. Great experience. It has been great talking to you. I've really enjoyed this. Um, very interesting. And you have some great stories and uh, you're going to get me travel. I cannot wait to travel even more now. I'm dying to get out. COVID is, yeah, we're used to going, we're used to going away at least uh, twice a year. And it's, That's it's it. I guess, nuts. Hopefully so. with the, the, you know, with the vaccines, I'm not going to say it's around the corner, but at least we can see the light at the end of the tunnel now, right? As opposed to a month ago where we're like, yeah, we've, Maybe all next year, this is going to be the same. So right now I'm hoping maybe by the middle of next year, um, people will slowly be able to tra- start traveling again. 
another like eight months, nine months will be. Well, that's it. That's what I'm thinking. Like some end of summerish, <laughs> optimistically, optimistically. But I will follow the health guidelines. I don't. Anybody listening, don't take my word on that. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. So I hope it's sooner. I hope it's sooner rather than later. <laughs> this has been second scene with me, Michael. Thank you, Ray. You can find out more about Ray Blankney at rayblankney.com. R A Y B L A K ney.com mm-hmm. if you want more no-nonsense advice free mentorship mentorship help free mental health assistance free health uh there's seriously no catch and it's completely confidential contact us at dweebsglobal.org slash contact and it's free i swear it's free um thanks again thanks michael it's been a lot of fun yeah.